This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for December 28th, 2018. In this week's episode, as we approach the new year, we'll take a look back at some of the more notable security-related news stories of 2018. The Intego Mac Podcast is presented by Intego, makers of security and utility software exclusively for Apple products since 1997. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern, and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Merry Christmas, Josh. Merry Christmas, Kirk. I hope you've had nice holidays. We're recording this on Thursday the 27th, so it's just a couple days after Christmas. But we had a sort of long weekend, right? Four days. Isn't that nice to get four days off for Christmas? I always enjoy that. (laughs) This is our last episode of the year, and we want to thank all our listeners for joining us throughout the year. And if you're new to the podcast, please check out our past episodes. Subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. Or if you use another app, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Play. I think we're pretty much everywhere that podcasts can be found. So it's the end of the year and it's time to sum up the year. I thought today we would go through some of the big stories that we've reported during the year. We'll have links in the show notes to uh, previous podcast episodes plus articles on the Intego Max Security blog. What have you found, Josh? I know that you've been making a big list. We have a shared Google Doc that we use, and Josh has made this huge, long list of malware. There's a lot of malware. You know, we were saying before the show, there is this trope that Macs don't get malware, and we just keep proving this wrong over and over. And, you know, I just want to say that Intego is a security company, and there is this conspiracy theory that security companies create malware to sell their software. And, you know, if that's what you think, I'm sorry. Security companies are just basically struggling to keep up with all the malware. It's true on the Mac platform, we don't have anywhere near as much as Windows, but this year was a bumper crop, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a ton of Mac malware this year relative to a lot of previous years. Technically, the year 2018 was the year of the dog and the Chinese Zodiac, but it could have just as easily been the year of the rat. Oh, I see what you did there. Rat. (laughs) We've already talked about rats previously on the podcast. Remote administration tools. Right. I think the best way to, to, to explain a rat is someone puts software in your computer that Tom Cruise can control remotely. There you go. Yeah. And and there's different ways that you could get a rat on your computer. Rat can also stand for remote access Trojan. So sometimes somebody will trick you into installing something that gives a backdoor into your computer. That's that's another way that sometimes these can can get installed. But the other way is that somebody, you know, walks up to your computer. Maybe you walk away from your computer for a little while and someone just walks up behind you and sneakily installs something and then takes off before you have a chance to notice that anyone touched it. So there's multiple ways that something like this can get on your computer, but it gives that person essentially full access to everything on your computer, even when they're not even near you. You can be on the other side of the world from wherever they are, and they can still access your files or view your screen, take screenshots and all kinds of things like this. And so the goal of a rat is, as you say, to to get access to a user's data and information, which might be your credit card numbers, it might be your passwords, but In many cases, it might be someone trying to get access to documents in a business's network. If you think about it, I mean, all bets are off. Once somebody has a foothold into your machine, they can pivot to other things in your network. They can do really anything they want with your computer. Like you alluded to, you know, you can log keystrokes. So if someone's typing in their credit card number or password for a website, 
that could all get logged to a file and then they just come by and pick that file up whenever they want. And hey, now they've got your credit card number or whatever else you might have typed. Well, the rat can probably send emails automatically when there's new data, can't it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's all, all kinds of ways that they can, you know, exfiltrate data from your computer. Exfiltrate data. I like that word. That's such a Tom Cruise word. <laughs> That's right. But it wasn't just rats. So there was a ton of other malware. Here's here's just a, a short list. Okay, so there's Mommy, there's Schlayer, there was Creative Updater, there was an unwanted miner that made it into the Mac App Store. That's a cryptocurrency mining app. Cryptocurrency miner, yep. There was Dummy, there was Callisto, which was fake Intego software. Somebody actually was trying to leverage Intego's reputation and they put out a fake installer that actually installed malware on your computer. So, you know, obviously only get Intego software from a legitimate source and you'll be fine. I just want to point out, we never really do a hard sell on this show. But Intego's virus barrier will protect you from all this malware. Yes. You know, we, we do have an ad in the middle of the show and you can save money on the software, but we don't do a hard sell. But it is important to note that there is a lot of malware and there are some really valid reasons for, for running anti-malware software on your Mac these days. Just to wrap up the list, we have an advanced persistent threat, <laughs> Lazarus. Oh, I love that one. Advanced persistent threat that exfiltrates data from your Mac. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we had search page injector, real time spy, and there were others that we could list too. But um, we'll, we'll have links in the show notes if you want to know more about any one of these that we've mentioned. Okay. So other than malware, there are a number of issues this year with what we call vulnerabilities. So the difference between malware and a vulnerability, these are both security risks. A vulnerability is something that is inherent to software, sometimes even to hardware or, or the firmware that runs hardware that makes it possible for someone to get into your system. Of course, the goal of that is to install malware. But vulnerabilities are really important because if they are in hardware, they're relatively difficult to mitigate. Tell us about Meltdown, Spectre, and other things that we saw this year. I just love these names. They're all like James Bond names. Yeah, yeah. They've, <laughs> they've got some great names. Well, and there's kind of a joke in the information security industry, you know, that a vulnerability is no good unless it has a logo and a theme song and, you know, uh, you know all those kind of fun things. So Meltdown and Spectre, they do have logos. Meltdown Inspector were some vulnerabilities in processing technology. In, so Intel processors kind of got a bad rap, but it really applies to other processors as well. This was actually something that was discovered near the end of 2017, but nobody really heard about it until January 2018, when all of a sudden uh, there were just enough people that had kind of independently discovered these vulnerabilities and re had reported them to the manufacturers and also the operating system vendors and said, guys, you got to do something about this. And enough people had finally discovered it by that point that there was just no containing it anymore. And so the news leaked um, really before there were patches available in some cases. And these were actual processor level vulnerabilities, which is kind of scary if you think about it, because what can you do if your processor has a, has a serious flaw? There are some mitigations for it. In other words, ways that you can prevent this from really being a problem on your system. Most of those have been operating system updates. And of course, Apple did release operating system updates at the beginning of the year to specifically address these vulnerabilities. And didn't these fixes somewhat slow down computers? 
Yeah, to some degree. It wasn't really significant impact um, to Mac or iOS performance, but in certain cases or for certain types of processing tasks, it can definitely cause somewhat of a slowdown. It was more of an issue, I think, for hosting companies that were running servers on behalf of, of other companies, because now, you know, they do everything that they can to squeeze out every little bit of processing power and make their systems as efficient as possible. And now if they had all these systems that were using a bit more processing power, that could be a problem for them in some cases. So you said that a number of people independently discovered these vulnerabilities. How does one discover a hardware vulnerability? I mean, I know in software, you've got the software and you try to do sneaky things, but is it the same process when you're trying to discover a vulnerability in hardware? It, it can be. A lot of times, in fact, it's programmers who are trying something and, uh, you know, something wrong happens and they go, how did that happen? And so they do a little more digging and they ultimately find out, oh, yikes, you know, this could be something really bad. A lot of times it's it's just that process of developing software and something bad happens that it shouldn't happen. Like there's no way this should happen. And then it does. So it's pretty much random. And when the developers look at the bug reports, they find that there's absolutely nothing wrong with their code. And then they say, well, if the processor was doing something wrong, is that it? It, it could be. In other cases, sometimes because of certain known vulnerabilities that exist in hardware, a developer could take that concept and build upon it. So after this announcement in January about Meltdown Inspector, throughout the year, there have been a number of other researchers who have been trying to find similar vulnerabilities and in some cases have been successful at finding similar vulnerabilities in hardware. It could be from one angle or another. So some people actually are specifically trying to find hardware vulnerabilities now because there are these big bug bounties. You know, you can make a ton of money if you responsibly disclose some of these vulnerabilities to Intel or other manufacturers. And you can also make a ton of money if you irresponsibly disclose these vulnerabilities to Tom Cruise or his ilk. <laughs> well, that's true. We, we would, of course, encourage people to do the, the ethical thing and report it. Hack responsibly, yes. And we <laughs> did discuss the difference at some point during the year between white hat hackers. These are the good guys who tell the manufacturers about vulnerabilities and black hat hackers who sell them to the bad guys. So in other news, a couple of companies have figured out ways to get into iOS devices, and this forced Apple to make a change in the way iOS devices work when something is connected to them. Can you explain that? Right. So there's a company called Celebrite that announced at the beginning of the year, and it, it had kind of been known about a little bit. So back in 2015, you might re remember there was this San Bernardino shooting incident, and it became a big deal in 2016 as it was going through the legal system. And, you know, the FBI was trying to get Apple to unlock a device, and Apple said, nope, it's too late. There's not really any way that we can help you with this anymore. And the Rumor is that the FBI took this device to an Israeli company called Celebrite and said, here, unlock this for us. Celebrite had kind of already been in the news because of that. And at the beginning of 2018, Celebrite said, oh, yeah, by the way, we can do this for anybody who wants. Just send us your iOS device and we'll unlock it for you. So unlocking an iOS device as a service. And then not long after that, a company called Grayshift announced this product called Graykey that they were marketing to law enforcement primarily. Same, same uh, market 
as Celebrite. And they said, yeah, well, you don't have to send it to us. We'll actually send you a device that you can use to unlock an, any iOS device. So you just hook it up, you know, plug it into the lightning port and, uh, you know, give it a little bit of time and you'll be able to get right in. No problem. So because of these two things, Apple had to introduce a new feature called USB restricted mode. This was something that I think Apple had been planning on implementing in iOS 12 anyway, but they actually released this as a feature in iOS, I think 11.4.1, one of the final releases of iOS 11, just to make sure that as many devices as possible, as soon as possible, were getting protections from these kind of attacks. Right, and you can find this setting on your iPhone or iPad. You go to settings, face ID, and passcode, and then go all the way down to the bottom, and it's called USB accessories. If this is toggled off, anytime you connect a USB device to your iPhone, even your Mac, to, to back it up with iTunes, for instance, you'll have to authenticate yourself with face ID or touch ID or your passcode. If you toggle it on, then that won't happen. Now, you might find this annoying if you're used to connecting your iPhone to your iMac to back it up or to sync it, because you'll connect it and you'll forget that you need to authenticate. There is a little banner that displays on the device, but it is a good way to protect against the occasional police force that wants to get into your iPhone. Or, you know, Tom Cruise. <laughs> exactly. Okay, we're going to take a short break and tell you about Intego's great Mac security software, and we'll be back with some more stories about what happened in 2018. If you or someone you know has got a new MacBook or iMac or switched to the Mac from Windows, be sure to check out Intego's new Mac User Center. It's a one-stop collection of the things you'll need to know about using your Mac. Intego's new Mac User Center covers plenty of the basics to get you running smoothly and smartly in no time. Of course, one of the first steps you'll want to take is to install Mac security software from Intego to keep yourself protected. And right now, Intego Mac podcast listeners can get 50% savings on Intego software, including Mac Premium Bundle X9. Mac Premium Bundle X9 is a suite of terrific Intego software that includes the antivirus, anti-phishing, and anti-spyware protection of Intego Virus Barrier, home and hotspot firewall security from Intego Net Barrier, parental controls for peace of mind from Intego Content Barrier, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today, and then use the promo code Intego Podcast at checkout to save 50%. That's Intego Podcast to save 50% on complete Mac protection and security with Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9. Intego, devoted to protecting Apple products since 1997. Visit Intego.com today. So in the first half of this episode, we talked about malware and vulnerabilities and other security threats, but a lot more happened this year, and it involves hardware and software and updates to Apple devices, etc. Worth pointing out that this was a bumper year for Apple products. We're used to seeing a new iPhone every year. We've gotten used to seeing a new Apple Watch every year, but we also saw the HomePod, new Macs, the iMac Pro, updates to MacBook Pros, an update to the Mac Mini five years after the last update the new iPad Pro that came out in the fall. So it's been a busy year. One of the biggest stories in tech right now, though, is smart speakers. And 
uh, people all over are getting smart speakers, whether they run Siri, Alexa, or what's the Google thing called? Okay, Google. Well, I know you. The, what you say is okay, Google. I guess you're actually talking to Google, whereas with Amazon and Apple, you're talking to a personified assistant who has a name, Siri, Alexa. Notice they're feminine names. With Google, it's just like you're talking to the Google. So anyway, back in March, I wrote an article for the Intercomac Security blog entitled, Is Your Smart Speaker Spying on You? Because there have been a number of cases where things have been recorded and people are starting to get suspicious about this. I mean, I have two HomePods. I have a Sonos One speaker in the kitchen, which has Alexa, and I just turn these things off. There was a particular story early in the year where a Google Home Mini was recording everything that its owner said. Just last week, there was a story came out about an Alexa speaker that was sent a bunch of messages from someone else, like hundreds of messages that were someone else's. I'm not really comfortable with all this. Add to that, there was a story just today before we started recording this podcast that there is a fake Alexa setup app that is very high up in the App Store charts. And we did a search for Alexa on the iOS App Store before the show, and it comes up about 8th or 10th. It is called Setup for Amazon Alexa, and it's not real. That's right. Yeah, this is scary that something like this can make its way into an Apple-approved, you know, App Store ecosystem. But it does happen from time to time. It It's much less common than it is on the Google Play Store. But, you know, sometimes these things do slip by somehow. Uh, and this is one of those cases. Well, I find the Alexa ecosystem a bit worrying because when I searched for Alexa on my iPhone, I first get a sponsored listing for Amazon Prime Video. Then I get Amazon Alexa, that's their official app. Amazon Music, that's theirs. Amazon Prime Video, again, the, the top one was a uh, was an ad. Then I get something called Echo Look. I believe that's from Amazon. Then Ask for Amazon Alexa, Skills for Amazon Alexa. These are third-party apps. Commands for Alexa, Fix for Alexa, Echo Dot. There are a lot of Alexa-related apps. And I mean, this means that the Alexa ecosystem is open, and I, and I find that a bit threatening, that people can mistakenly choose an app to run on their iOS device to set up Alexa, and presumably on an Android device, whereas you can't do that with, the, with an Apple device. You, you can't get a fake app for the HomePod. Well, I think what's going on there is that a lot of those apps, probably most of those apps, are just someone trying to capitalize on a popular brand name. And so they're probably just kind of guides or, you know, here, here are some commands that you can say, but it's probably nothing more than things that you can, can tell an, an Alexa-enabled device. You know, I, I don't I don't think that a third party app can actually update or or set up your Alexa device from scratch. I think that's something that um, you're going to have to have the official app to do. And so that's what makes this interesting is why did Apple approve this then? Because it seems kind of obvious that, you know, if you're setting up a device from scratch, you're going to want to use the official approved app. And this very clearly was not an app developed by Amazon. Yeah. Okay. So I'm linking to an article on Engadget about this. And I just want to point out that in the sidebar, there is a, a, a very entertaining animated GIF of a bunch of kittens on a Roomba that's running around someone's kitchen. And this is like, this is what the internet is made for, isn't it? <laughs> kittens on a Roomba. Yeah, it's pretty cute. So in other news, Facebook has been sort of the punching bag for the tech industry, hasn't it, this year? There have been data breaches. We found out that they've been selling our data, that letting companies read private messages, targeting people in nefarious ways. 
So back in May, I wrote an article called How to Easily Remove Old Tweets and Facebook Posts because you might want to delete some of your information. Just a, an interesting little personal story, and, and I won't mention names, but someone I know mentioned recently that someone they know has a son who wanted to be a police officer in the UK, and he was turned down because they found some old tweets that he had made when he was a teenager. So it's kind of a good idea to wipe your history, especially if you've been using social media as a young person before your prefrontal cortex has fully developed, and now you've realized that you've reached adulthood and things are more serious. It is a bit of work. You can delete old tweets, and I, and I link to a service called Cardigan, which is free, and which, frankly, I use now every two weeks. I delete, I keep two or three weeks of tweets in my account. I don't need to have tens of thousands of tweets. Facebook has a little bit more work to do this. You have to go over the process many times. There's a, a, a plugin called Social Book Post Manager, which I mentioned in the article. And, you know, I just feel uncomfortable with that much data being on Facebook. I've deleted most of my Facebook data. In fact, I don't even use Facebook very much other than for groups to interact with people about specific subjects like photography and music and things like that. How do you feel about all this? having your life history on Twitter and Facebook? Well, um, I, I'm one of those people who probably had my prefrontal cortex develop <laughs> at an earlier age or something, because <laughs> I think that uh, I'm, I'm not ashamed of stuff that I've posted in the past. And I, I've always been pretty careful, I think, about like what kinds of things I've chosen to post on social media or what kinds of things that, you know, someone has tagged me in that I'll allow to show up on my timeline and those kind of things. So I'm not terribly concerned about this. I would advise a little bit of caution if signing up for a service that will automatically delete old posts, because what if they get compromised? I mean, you, even if they're a totally legitimate, reputable company, if someone hacks them then, and they have access to, to your timeline, something bad could theoretically happen there. This is true, but you can sign out of them as soon as you're finished and then sign back in again when you want to use them. They don't have to be permanently linked to your accounts. That's definitely the better way to do it. If you have somebody who wants permanent access to your account, uh, it's probably not the best idea. Yeah, no, I agree with that. In other news, Apple updated all its operating systems as it is wont every fall. And there are some really interesting new features. We'll talk about the security and privacy features in a minute. One feature that I really like is screen time. Screen time is on iOS 12 and it tracks how you use your device. It tells you how much time you spend on your device total, it tells you how many notifications you get, how many times you pick up your device, which is a bit deceptive. You may pick it up just to check the time or to use Siri, but it can give some interesting data. And if you have multiple iOS devices, you can set it to share all this information across devices. Now, I'm not a big game player, but I found this really cool kind of solitaire game a couple weeks ago. And then at the end of the week, when I saw I'd been playing it nine hours, I deleted it. It's the kind of thing you pick it up for 15 minutes here and 20 minutes there, but nine hours in a week, that's too much. Yeah. And that, you know, that's actually a really good use case. I've heard a lot of people say very similar things about screen time that they had no idea how much time they were spending on X, Y, or Z. Maybe Facebook was the app that they didn't realize they were spending so much time in. And, you know, do I really need this? Why am I spending nine or 10 hours a week in this app? I'm better off just getting rid of this and taking that time back and using it for something better. Although we probably will find something else to waste it on. <laughs> Cat videos. <laughs> 
cats on a Roomba. I mean, really. I'm always tempted to get a Roomba just to put my cats on. One of my cats is so afraid of vacuum cleaners that my partner was cleaning the house earlier today, and he just ran in a corner. The other one sits and watches, but I don't think either one would want to be on a Roomba. We are straying from the topic of our podcast. A bit. One thing about screen time, though, is it can be deceptive. I have an iPad mini, and I like to read Kindle books on it occasionally, so that's going to show up as reading and reference. And I'll sometimes read for two hours in a row. I do also have a regular Kindle, but it's only going to show up, you know, on screen time if I've been reading on my iPad. Another thing is there's times when I'll watch Netflix or Amazon Prime Video on my iPad in bed. So that also shows up as a lot more hours. And finally, you know, I do some of my work on these devices, researching, testing, doing screenshots. You know, even on my iPad, I do some writing work. So it depends on the way you use your device. But I think the the, the telling thing is that you know, seeing nine hours for a, a, a solitaire game really made me say I could be reading. I could read a novel in nine hours. Yeah, it, it definitely helps you make better life choices in some cases. So one more thing in the screen time settings is you can use this to adjust the settings of your children's iOS devices. You can set times when they can't use the device. You can limit the type of categories of apps they can use. You have a great deal of granular settings. Now, these used to be called restrictions prior to iOS 12. And before that, they were called parental controls. And there are similar parental controls settings on the Mac. But of course, if you want really good parental control on the Mac, you get into Go Content Barrier, which is far more powerful and offers more granularity. But on an iOS device, we don't have that option. Intego can't release software that controls that level of the operating system. I'll have an article on the Intego Mac security blog about how to use this. It's very useful if you have children to know what options you have here with screen time. On the one hand, you can use it to see what your children are doing. But on the other hand, you can limit them. For example, you set a time limit for a certain category of apps to make sure that they don't play too many games on their iOS device. I can see how, how this could be really useful. If you've got kids, um, you know, you don't want them to be abusing their device. And so this can be a good way to help out with that. Okay, the last thing I want to highlight is the new security and privacy features in both iOS 12 and macOS Mojave. I'm not going to go into detail. I just want to talk about the, the new password features. I don't know about you, Josh, but I think these new password features are wonderful. Apple has long had a keychain, which is an encrypted way of storing passwords, and it's on the Mac and it's on iOS. Well, what they did in iOS 12 and macOS Mojave is they extended the power of the keychain. First of all, it can recommend a secure password, a strong password, when you go to sign in on a website. Second of all, it can link into any third-party password manager that you're using. So if you are using a password manager and store your passwords someplace else, not in the keychain, you can access them quickly using Touch ID and Face ID. And that's another thing. Instead of autofilling a password, you now have to authenticate with Touch ID or Face ID, which you didn't have to do previously. Once a phone was unlocked, anyone could take it and automatically log into a website because they didn't need authentication. The other thing I like about this is that they have added a tool for two-factor authentication, which we've talked about many times. This is when you go to log into a website, you put a username and password, and then you get a code either from an app or sent by SMS. And Josh is going to remind us that SMS is inherently insecure for two-factor authentication. That is true. But when you do this on an iPhone or on a Mac or even on an iPad, if you have text message forwarding set up from your iPhone, this six-digit code is automatically available in the field on the web page where you're signing in. So you just tap on the field, you'll see a little menu that shows this code is coming from messages, you tap and you sign in. And this has made security 
easier for the masses. Right. And, and as a reminder, although I am not the biggest fan of SMS as your second factor, it's better than not having one at all. So if whatever service you're using only offers a text message, at least use that because it's better than not having any protection beyond just your password. Um, you asked, do I like this feature? I do. I, th I think this is actually really good. This is something that Apple has been lacking for a long time. There hasn't really been uh, an Apple approved official password manager. And now essentially we have that with iCloud Keychain. So this is, this is a good thing. I think Apple's definitely taking steps in the right direction here. Yeah, the one thing I would like to see them do next year is add the ability to generate those authentication codes on an iOS device. So currently you can do this with a third-party password manager. I use one password and when I go to my login, say for Google, it's got my username and password and there's a code. I can put that on my Apple Watch so I can tap it, automatically get the code, read it and type it in. If iCloud Keychain could also do this, that means it could generate the code for you automatically rather than you having to get it via SMS. Right. Using an authenticator app is much safer. Google Authenticator is one, Authy is another. I'll link to both of those in the show notes. Because this way, no one's sending that code. It's coming from your device. To set this up, you have to do a certain thing between the website and your device. But once it's set up, you've got you know much better security. And you're not depending on the phone service to be able to log into a website if you don't have any cellular access. Right. And this makes a lot of sense for Apple to get into this game. Because you know why should I be using a Google Authenticator app? That doesn't make any sense. If I want better two-factor, Apple can provide that. Why don't they? Okay, well, that's a wrap. We've gone over 2018. In next week's episode, we're going to talk about some New Year's resolutions about how to do a security audit on your Mac and your iOS device. Until then, Josh, Happy New Year and stay secure. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the online show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.